Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, it's also been a long time since I preached not on Revelation, so this is kind of fun as well. This uh, series was put together by Dan. It really uses the standard church pericope, so if you're in a, a Lutheran church, a Catholic church, a Methodist church, you're probably going to hear this reading Wednesday evening uh, on this Wednesday in Lent which, of course, is the season that we are in. And this is the story of Jesus healing a blind man, a man who was born blind, and it comes with this really interesting question. Now, there's a lot more text that there's other churches are going to be reading tonight. We're going to focus on verses 1 through 7, because I promise you there is so much in this, in this pericope, in this chunk of John, that I could preach for days on it, but I'm going to keep it shorter than that. Because this is the word of our Lord and Savior Jesus, would you please stand? As he, that is Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This is the gospel of our Lord. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we've got an interesting question of the day. Uh, there's been some times in, in our lives together that, that Joni and I, were, she has been home after her child is born, not working or anything, and I've always thought um, that must have been a difficult thing just for the lack of interactions, right? Just, just for the, the lack of humans who are bigger than this to talk to. And I could always tell when it's been one of those days because I would come home and open the door and I'd start getting questions. She just wanted to talk to anybody who <laughs> wasn't calling her mom and asking for food or, or whatever it was. And, and, I, and I just remember as, as I would come home, these, these questions would come and, and just being the guy and not really great at communication, I would have to be like, well, we got to, okay, let's organize, limit the number of questions until like after dinner, just, just get in the, in the mode of, of home and put things away and then sit down, have conversation, Right? But that, that whole mindset that we've sort of developed, I think, over the years, partially stemming from things like that, just in general around our house, we ask questions. And when we sit at the, at the dinner table, there is one specific question that we ask everybody. We all sit around and we say, how was your day? And around the table we go, and, and everybody stays. Nobody can be excused until everybody shares how their day was. It's, it's built in our family a, a bit of a culture of curiosity, of, of being willing to ask questions and talk and find out. And so I have a bit of sympathy for the disciples in our text, because they ask a question, 
And I'm going to be honest with you, it's a pretty good question, right? We like to think of the disciples as these finished products, like they are the in the book of Acts, or you know, much later on as they're doing ministry and starting churches. But before that, they were just these guys who were hearing about Jesus and the kingdom of God for the first time. Granted, it was from Jesus, but this is like, imagine you know, our, our confirmands <laughs> are sitting down and, and going through the, the small catechism for the first time. They don't know it as well as some of the adults do. We just take it for granted that these guys should be experts, but they're learning, and they're learning just like everybody learns, just like people in our family learn by asking questions, and the question's pretty good, right? They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, yesterday, because I had a bunch of pastors here, I got to use really big pastor words. It was so much fun, <laughs> right? I was like, it's a question that is ontological and cosmological, even teleological. And they also weren't impressed. So, yeah, that's the same look I got from them. Like, would you shut up? All right. It's a good question because it's a big question. That's really all those words mean. It's a big question. Because the question is essentially the, the same sort of big question is why do bad things happen to good people. This man was born blind. So, so what is it? Is it this issue of, of parental, like hereditary sin? Because there is some scripture. If you, go, if you go to Exodus chapter 18, 20 in there, you've got the scripture that says, the sin of the fathers is visited upon the generations. But... But there's this other school of thought that says from Deuteronomy chapter 24 that a man shall not be put to death for the sin of his children or the children for the sin of the father. Everybody's put to death for their own sin. <laughs> Real cheerful text, by the way, right? And there's, there's even like some recorded debate between some rabbis of Jesus' time trying to figure out how to take these two texts and sort of work them out, which one is predominant or how does this work. So it was actually probably a pretty serious question just for, for people of God's kingdom at that time, just like it is for us. It's one of the number one questions as a Christian you'll be asked when somebody challenges your faith. If there really is a God, why would he let that train derail in Ohio? If there really is a God, why would this, this whole thing with Ukraine and Russia keep going? And if there really was a God, they're asking the same big question. But here's the thing that I love about our text this morning, and it's really found everywhere in, in the book of John. What Jesus does is presented with a question, he kind of almost nods his head, and in a beautiful, elegant, and just absolutely brilliant way, turns around and answers a different question that they didn't ask. <laughs> the, the most clear example of this is the Good Samaritan. We're all super familiar with this text, right? The Good Samaritan, guy's walking around, gets beat up, and people come by. Well, what started that was somebody asked Jesus. He's, he's having this short conversation. He says, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells this brilliant story, right? We all love the story of the Good Samaritan. He tells this brilliant story, and at the end, he turns and asks the man, 
who was the neighbor. Not who is my neighbor, but who was neighborly to somebody else. You see how it's not the right answer (laughs) to the question? And Jesus is actually answering the question that the guy didn't ask, that he should have asked. He should have asked, how am I to be neighborly? How, how do I act neighborly? I love when Jesus does this. So Jesus is, is walking by, and there's a man born blind from birth, and of course the disciples ask this question, but you don't really even get a, a good sense of what's going on until we look at the text a little bit more closely. Because at first glance, we think the, the first action of this interaction comes from the disciples with the question. But that's not what it says. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And the disciples asked him. Commentators all agree there was something in the look that drew their attention. There's something in the looking that, that drew the attentions of the disciples. And we all know what this is like, right? I have, I have this habit. It's a bad habit. I know it's a bad habit, but when I, when I finish having a beer in the evening, I go and I don't want to just throw it in the recycling bin because you know, a, little, a little leftover will leak out and it gets all sticky and gross. So I'll go over to the sink and I'll put some water in it, rinse it. And for some reason, because I'm at the sink, it just, I just set it next to the sink. And I'll turn around and I'll see uh, from my wife a certain look. <laughs> my bad, <laughs> go, and so it, it just takes a look, and I know I'm supposed to do something. I, it, we've all, the ones who are laughing hardest have gotten the look the most, right? Yeah, we know that what this look is, and, and I suspect that's sort of what happened. As, as Jesus is passing by, there's this man born blind, and his disciples are there, and maybe he even kind of slows down and, and turns, kind of stops, and kind of gives them the, hey, and they don't know what to do. They go, um, I don't know, what does he want? <laughs> you ask him, a, uh, how about this question? Well, unlocking the key of what Jesus is doing, you actually have to go backwards to a part of the text that we didn't read. In chapter 8, Jesus is having an interaction that is not going so well with some people who are claiming that they are part of God's kingdom because they are children of Abraham. So in chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's a big thing to say, I am. Ego eimi, this is the Greek construction of the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh, I am. He says, before Abraham, ego eimi. I am God. He's, he has just made the claim, essentially committed blasphemy, um, except it's not because he is God. But in their minds, he's just committed blasphemy. So what do they do? They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus hid himself right, right in front of them. He just whoop, disappeared. He's in the temple. All of a sudden, they can't see him. They can't see him. And then he passes by and he sees a man who can't see him. 
You see how this is, these two things have a similarity of this blindness. But let me tell you what the difference is. So the, the disciples are asking the wrong question. In fact, they're not even supposed to be asking a question like that at all. What Jesus is, is not talking about sin. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus wants to have a conversation about light and dark and seeing and not seeing. That's what Jesus wants. That's, he looks at the guy and he goes, remember how those people couldn't see me? This guy can't see me? I'm about to do something. And what he's doing is he's juxtaposing these two things. Because on the one hand, he had a bunch of people who were certain that they were in the light. Children of Abraham. We know what we're doing. We know what's going on. We're good people. We do all the right things. We say the right things. We do the right things. We go to church even on Wednesday night. (laughs) Right? We know who we are. We are children of the light. And we trust in the good things that we do. And Jesus says, when you trust in the good things you do, even if it's just the lineage and heritage that you have back to Abraham, then you're not looking at Jesus. And you don't see Jesus if what you see is what you're doing. You're not looking at Christ. You're not looking at the cross. You're looking at yourself. And Jesus is hidden from you. The man born blind has no misconceptions over being blind. He knows he can't see. He knows he's in darkness. That's the one Jesus goes to to bring light. That's why this text is so good for Lent. Lent is the season of us making sure we recognize the sin and darkness in our lives, making sure we recognize we are born blind from birth and Christ comes to us in that darkness. It's easy to to just let your your mind wander from that, your heart wander from that. And and yeah, I'm a sinner. We confessed our sins this morning. All of that is good. And and just it's so easy to slip into this mode of I'm doing the right things, I'm saying the right things, I'm all of this is good, and forget that we are born sinners. And darkness remains. We confessed this earlier. There are times when it's easy to see your darkness, right? When darkness happens to you, when there's a diagnosis, when, as for for John David, there's a a death in the family. You feel the darkness. You feel the aloneness. You, You feel that place. But there are other times when we don't notice it as much, when we don't notice that we, that we harbor resentment against somebody or we are more frustrated than we should be. We're too short with our kids sometimes. We say something that wasn't all that nice to somebody. We, we cut somebody off in traffic, or whatever it might be. Whatever it might be. We, we tend to forget those parts of the darkness and pretend like we're not the blind man. Lent is that time to embrace the darkness. Not because we love it, not because we want to stay there, but because to understand the darkness that we are in, as Jesus wants the disciples to understand, we are born 
blind is to understand and appreciate the magnitude of this incarnation of God. As John says, he is the light of the world. Jesus says in John, in our text, he is the light of the world. He's not just a good teacher. He didn't come here to help Israel get things a little bit more under control. He didn't come to help people who are doing okay be a little bit better. He didn't come to you who mostly have their lives together, you know, all got you know, ready for church and drove here. You guys are doing pretty good. He didn't, he didn't come to this earth to help you out. He came to rescue you from darkness. It's so easy to, to lose track of darkness in suburbia Des Moines, in our nice houses and cars and jobs and all of the blessings that we have. This world is broken. And it's so easy to ask the question of the disciples. Maybe this is where your darkness is. It's easy to ask the, the question of the disciples is, whose fault is that darkness? Is it his fault? Like, like preemptive sin? <laughs> God knew he would sin when he was 50 years old, so he made him born blind? Like pre-crime <laughs> something? Or, or is this a, a father, mother, intergenerational situation and Jesus is not even going to address this issue of finding fault and blame and putting guilt and saying it's 20% this, 20% that, 60% here. He's, he's not at all concerned with that. And it's frankly foolish to ask those questions. The best you can do is say, I am at fault for all of the stuff that I'm at fault for. <laughs> I played some role in whatever darkness I'm living in. I, I did something, no matter what it is. But the, that's even not the point. The point is rather, look to Jesus and the light. So they did. They asked a dumb question. But there is a good question that, that you can ask, and I know you've all asked it, in your head. Dude, what's with the mud, right? Like, that's, that's a weird thing, right? There's a couple of theories on this, um, and it's, they're all decent theories that, that I think fall short of the full meaning. There's, there was, there, there's plenty of evidence at the time that pagan rituals included saliva when it came to wounds and healing. Um, Vespian was uh, vying to become emperor. And this is right around 70 AD. So he's vying to become emperor. There's this legend that a guy falls in front of him after battle and he's wounded and, and uh, Vespian accidentally even spits on him and the guy's healed. Um, probably just a legend, but people believed it at the time. We do have a, a rabbi about 130, 150 AD, um, and, and he and some other rabbis are having a conversation about how it's wrong to pray in the name of the Lord, read the scriptures, and then spit on somebody's wound to heal it because that's what pagans do. <laughs> so clearly there's something going on where, where people think saliva from the right person or with the right prayer incanta incantation does something. But it's, that, that falls short still. I, I, like the, I like the idea that Jesus knows this and is ironically sort of 
spitting in the eye, if you will, of all of those people who are, are thinking these, these things are of the pagan world. But more so, what this text is doing is pointing to what Jesus just said, or the action, I should say, matches his words. Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. This is his work. He's, he's saying it. We've got to do the work while it's light, and I'm here, and it's light, and the work is making mud and sticking it on somebody's eye? No. God's work, creation, recreation, the formation of man. In Genesis, God speaks into existence all things except Adam. He scoops together some dust and some dirt, forms man and breathes into it. Here Jesus is doing the very same thing. He's, he's taking his spit, making it so it's a little bit muddy, and he's showing everybody what the light of Christ does. This is pointing to the resurrection. Had Jesus not done this with the mud and the spit on his eyes, but this man believed that he was the Messiah, this very thing would happen at the resurrection. This is just a preview of resurrection glory. And he's telling the whole world that the light of the world has come to invade the darkness, to rescue those who are in darkness, to bring them to the resurrection and everlasting life. Where things like blindness, things like bum shoulders, bad knees or hips or whatever it might be, those things are a thing of the past. Not because of spitting and mud, but because this is what God does. He takes the broken and he heals. And he uses plain, ordinary things. He uses bread and wine when we have communion. He uses water when we have baptism. He combines some of himself into the things of this world to change and heal and bring light to us today. But that's to point us to the time when we're perfectly and fully healed at the resurrection, points us to Easter every single time. Jesus is always pointing to the empty tomb. In whatever he's doing, whatever he is saying, yes, he comes to us in darkness now to give us the opportunity to walk and to live in the light. So even though dark things happen to us or there's darkness in our hearts because of sin, even though that exists, we have light. It's good for us today to have this but if we stop there, we're missing the light that brings us to everlasting life. To when we are raised up from the dead, he is showing the disciples this is the work of God to take what is broken and to make it new and healed. To take what is, what is beyond repair of what we can do as, as people, the best doctors, surgeons, doesn't matter. What God does is he takes the plain things and he can do this for your heart. In those places you think, I cannot heal this thing, God can. That part of your life or that relationship that you have or whatever it is you think, I, it's not redeemable. Well, that's how they felt about the blind guy. <laughs> in that day, in that age, born blind, we got nothing for you. No technology, nothing's going to work, and God did it. How much more can he heal you and reach to you in your darkness? So for the remainder of Lent, 
Don't be afraid to confess your sin and to look at it and go, jeez, it's pretty bad. Don't, don't be afraid. Don't retreat from the news or those things. This world is dark. It is. It's really dark. The light is coming. Amen. May the peace which surpasses human understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Would you please stand to receive the blessing? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord look upon you with his favor and give to you his peace. Amen.